Sounds great. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our episode today. You are joining the Veterinary Optimist, and I am your host, Jennifer Evans. Today, we actually have a very special guest. I'm really excited to have this conversation uh, with Dr. Jill Clark today. She is the CEO of Ignite, and today we're going to dig into her journey a little bit from DVM to CEO. Uh, Dr. Clark, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll be calling you Jill throughout the interview. If you're okay with that, welcome. Yeah, no, it's great to be here, Jennifer. I'm so excited to talk with you today. I, you know what, I really am too. And it's funny because I'll just jump right in and, and tell a little bit of the story of how we met. So I am, I think LinkedIn is a great platform for meeting other professionals who are focused on the same thing, which is helping out with vet medicine and, and, and bringing education and bringing light to a lot of great things happening with us. And I saw a post that you put one day talking about being a female CEO and being a private company and doing it for all of these right reasons. And I was like, man, I'm just so inspired by that post. I'm going to just, I'm just going to hop on my messages and I'm going to shoot her a message. I'm going to introduce myself and hope that we hope that she answers me back and, and pretty much said, Hey, Dr. Clark, my name's Jennifer. And I really want to be your friend. Um, and you answered me back and I'm grateful for that because now it's built what I would consider a really cool friendship, you know? And so I want to thank you for taking the opportunity to to chat with me and to to be my friend. It, it, it's funny because during that process, we even found out that we kind of live close to each other. <laughs> yeah, I think being courageous and seeking other people to help you in your journey is a sign of just of really greatness. So I, I applaud you for reaching out, and it's been it's been fantastic for me too. Oh gosh, I love that, and I do. It's funny. I'll I, I'll just kind of reflect on that statement a little bit. You know, I hear a lot about people championing and being mentors and speaking up and being advocates for, for people who they believe in. And, and I kind of feel like you've done that for me a little bit. And, and so that just goes to show just a little bit more about your leadership that I admire. And, and so, okay, we'll jump into, let's we'll jump into your story a little bit from, from, from the research that I've done, Jill, veterinary medicine, wasn't your first career. Is that a correct statement? Correct. Yes. So I was in the film business for film and television for 17, 18 years, something like that, before becoming a veterinarian. Wow. So you started at what age doing that? Well, I was in a movie called Where the Red Fern Grows when I was nine. And um, then after that, I just progressively worked through the industry. I was a production assistant, which just means you run around and get things for people uh, for almost no pay. And then kept working my way up to an assistant director, associate producer, um, and I produced some a, a movie as well. But yeah, and so it was it was a long journey, but a really exciting time in my life. Wow, to start to start working and to be in a film at nine that that had to have been a really, really just interesting job to to be a part of. I'm curious. We were talking before, and you said something about the reason why you wanted to get that job at the age of nine was for one specific thing. Can you tell me what that is? Was to, to buy a horse. So I came out of the womb, like many people that are horse lovers, just like obsessed with horses. Barbie doll comes in the playpen it gets flipped out. Pony comes in stays forever, you know, plush toys. Ponies were like, everybody could get me something like that for Christmas. And um, it just was a passion of mine. We, we weren't farm people. Nobody in my family had anything to do with horses. And I was obsessed. Um, when I was a little kid, I you had to be five years old or a certain height to start riding. And I made my mother take me every single day to the stable and put 
stand up against this little stick to see if I was finally tall enough. And I never was. So I, I started writing when I was five and I still to this day, I'm, I am writing nearly every day. I mean, it's, it's really the, what, what my passion that keeps me going, I think in, in all aspects of my life. Jill, I'm wondering as we, as we talk about this right now, do you feel like at nine, when you just had this urge and this love, or even at five for that matter, for these horses, did you ever think that was going to come into play later in life? So, uh, you know, I think most veterinarians have a moment they remember of when they wanted to be a veterinarian. And, and I think mm -hmm. it must be unique to us, or maybe maybe MDs do that same thing. But, you know, when we had a, a barn cat that was at our farm and, and one of the horse kicked it and I came out and I went to the vet with the kitty. My parents were like, I don't want to touch the thing. It's so gross. And I was like, he carried my little cat in and they fixed it. And it was like that moment I knew that, that I wanted to be a veterinarian and, and certainly wanted to be an equine veterinarian um, as well for a long time. And that kind of changed when I actually got to vet school, but yeah, it, it was definitely a calling with me. And that, that horse experience was what, what brought my whole family to a farm. I mean, so many things happened from that movie and that horse and all that, that led to veterinary medicine, uh, no mm. doubt. It, and it kind of comes full circle as we'll talk about a little bit more because you went from film to animal back kind of to film mixed in with animals. So it'll be interesting as we kind of move through this. So you did film from nine to, you said 17 years, or we'll just say around 26 or 27. So I assume that's about the time you decided that you wanted to go to vet school. Am I correct by saying that? You're correct. And since I've been in Hollywood and, and around the country, um, I did, I had some college classes, but I had to like basically do everything in two or three semesters to apply for vet school. So they made me sign some waiver that I wouldn't go crazy doing organic chem and biochem and physics and calculus and all that stuff at the same time, I remember. Um, but yeah, so I got it all done and went to vet school. And I think I was 28 when I actually got into vet school, um, which was an interesting thing because I found there were definitely younger people and probably smarter people and people who had better grades, you know, and everything a different journey along the way. But I being older, I wanted it so bad that I studied hard. I worked hard. I did everything I could do to be successful and um, ended up at the top of my class at graduation. And it was, it was really because I think I had that other life experience and I just didn't, I wanted this to work so badly that I put everything I had, you know, into that. Oh, that's, that's amazing. I guess I didn't realize that. So that's a really, that's a really interesting thing. You know, when I think about this and I think about the time frame that you were in vet school, that's about the time that veterinary medicine was making a shift from being a male dominated field to being a female dominated field. And I'm curious when you go into vet school and you're a little bit older, and, and I assume there had to have been some sort of like maybe insecurities or things around that because you're going in and then you have a bunch of younger kids and, and I might be projecting on that. But then on top of that, you're now going into a field where where women are just now starting to really find the majority of the space. Did you feel like it was hard for you when you were in school? Or do you feel like the the lessons you learned from being in film helped you navigate at that time what was a male-dominated field? I 
didn't even consider it, Jennifer. <laughs> I, I basically, um, so when you're an assistant director, one of your jobs is to move talent, you know, from their dressing room and trailer, get them out to the set, get everybody organized, you know, make sure that, that it's very, there's a lot of logistics to it, but there's a lot of ego management to it. And so after begging actors to get out of the trailer and the pouring rain and come out and work with us on the set, it just seemed like a piece of cake to go to vet school. So I, and film industry is very uh, agnostic. Like it's, there's not really, I think women and men are, are, are probably as equal as in any other profession in the film space. It's just not, it's a very, um, it's very ideal, I think. For women because there's there's people in higher positions in every every film company and everything else that are women in them so it was so I had a lot of good role models but it didn't really occur to me in vet school and I think that ego management thing that I learned was really helpful because I really could navigate different professors and what they liked and didn't like and whatnot um, to make it an easy transition that's interesting that you say it that way because it, there is something behind being able to recognize the different personalities. Veterinarians have a array of different personalities. I always joke around about technicians being able to navigate so many things because you'll have the outgoing one and the introverted one and, and the one who wants it a certain way. And the one who's like, Oh, you can do as much as you want. And, and you really have to be able to recognize that and know kind of what you're dealing with when you run into different veterinarians. So I think it's neat that you learned something within that field that, that brought you into school and made you feel more comfortable, but ultimately gave you this even playing field, moving on to the different levels that you have, have surpassed. Um, and, and I, and I really do, I really do think that's um, a beautiful way to, to cross those two paths. So, okay, Jill. So we're at the point now where we're talking a little bit about you've gone from your career in movies and then you have now gone through vet school and now you're ready to start practicing. In that in in that amount of time, how long were you in clinic practicing? Uh, about ten years. Okay, tell me, what did you like the most about when you were in clinic? Well, I love the people. I was really fortunate. I interviewed at a bunch of different practices, and um, I would just say to, to other people that are getting out and looking. You, you got to look beyond just the, the, the money is important, how you're going to get paid, but the culture of the practice is imperative. So I spent a lot of time, and I think because of my, it was a second career for me perhaps, but I spent a lot of time really trying to find the right fit for me. And um, I was maybe a little more progressive in my thoughts towards clients. And I interviewed at a practice. I remember one time they came to school and they were taking me to dinner and I had, you know, at that point, you're so broke, you're like just happy to have a really nice dinner. <laughs> and, um, and, but their, their thoughts were, well, we don't pamper these clients, you know, we're not going to do this or that. We're just, we're about medicine. And I thought, well, that doesn't seem very progressive to me. And I had another group that came and like, yeah, we're like, we, we try to do everything we can to really make those pet parents feel comfortable. I was like, bingo. So it was a different package and everything else, but it just felt better to me. So I would just say, I think the first step that was good on my part was finding one that really felt like home to me instead of looking at just what on paper might look really good. And um, I had an incredibly supportive group. There were six doctors in the practice that I started with. 
and they were just the best. I mean, they still are the best people. I'm still connected to them, but um, just anything you needed or had trouble with cases. I remember like crying one time that I had a case that went south and I was just like so depressed and Dennis Henson, veterinarian in, in Tulsa, he like said, put your arms out. And, like, and he started piling books up in my arms. And he said, you can't know everything that you're holding right now. You can't even hold the number of books it would take for you to never make a mistake in veterinary medicine. You've got to let this go because you've got to set these down. Like, and I just, it just like, oh, I still am telling a story today, right? So it was so important to me that to have that supportive team behind me that wanted me to succeed, but was happy to stay out of my way and let me try to be successful. They weren't hovering, but they were there if I needed them. And I just, I adored them. And I, additionally, just in general in veterinary medicine, I love being a detective and that's what that it is for us. Like we are detectives and spending a lot of time to figure something out and that was really challenging and exciting to me. So um, it, I, I had the best 10 years in practice um, that I think any new grad could ever enjoy. I tell, so I was one of the more senior technicians that would kind of help oversee new vets or interns that wanted to come in. And, and I was the one that interacted with them a lot. And I would always tell them the same thing, Jill. I would always say, don't make your decision of your first year based off of the amount of money you're going to make or what they can offer you. Base it off of the mentorship that you're going to have in practice because your first year is scary. And a lot of them come out with like really cold feet and they, you know, they're nervous to try things and they need someone to be able to rely on and talk to and not feel um, uncomfortable going to them and saying these things. And so I always tell people, go off of what you will learn from the people who work there, not how much you're going to make. And so I really enjoy that you tell that story because it gives almost a visual to like what mentorship can really mean, because I can really just see you sitting there holding a big stack of books. And then that recognition of like, you know, all of this, but you can't carry it around all the time. Like you just have to put into action. And, and I think that's really neat. So I, I love that. Yeah. So Jill, that kind of brings us up to a point when we talk a little bit about veterinarians in practice, you have a statement that you make around the word no. And I, and I kind of want to pause and, 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 and dig into it a little bit. Do you mind telling the listeners what that, what that quote is? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not what you say yes to. It's what you say no to that defines you. And I did not learn this. This, this is not something I came up with. Um, and actually my good friend, Mark um, Shaw, who's works with me now to kind of solidified that as the, it just reminds me that that was the core of why I moved out of practice um, was the lack of that. So I learned that a hard, the hard way for sure, but it's definitely been a key key to my success since, since that move from, from practice. So let's say that I'm a veterinarian. I'm a young veterinarian. I'm in practice. Say I'm a, I'm a young Dr. Clark in practice. What are some of the situations that I'm facing that I'm saying yes to all the time when I should be saying no a little bit? Like if you were to give an example of a situation when you were in practice, what is something that you wish you would have started saying no to a little bit more so that you could be aware of, of just how 
of an how much of an empty cup you were pouring from? Oh, it, it's I mean, there's so many examples, but um, I know we, we've talked before about being a people pleaser. We're perfectionists, I think, typically as veterinarians. But mine was kind of this hero syndrome. So I wanted to be I, I was good at client communications. I, I felt like I was competent in medicine and I just wanted to, I wanted every interaction to a client to be like, oh my gosh, you've solved this puzzle that no one else could solve. This is so great. You know, I fed on that. And I think that also caused me to just open the doors wide to call me anytime. If, if I'm not on emergency call and somebody else is on, call me anyway, because I know you, you know, it was just dumb stuff. Call me in the middle of my surgery day with your questions and I'll make sure there's an, an answer for you instead of me trying to stay on track mentally and get what I needed to get done properly. So I did, I did so many things wrong and it actually led to me leaving, you know, practice and the, the, the turning point for me, Jennifer was one day, it was mother's day. I'll never forget this. My mother, my grandma, aunts were kind of coming to my house. I was had a day off and they were going to brought dishes and we were going to have this wonderful family gathering. We hadn't had much time together since I graduated. And, and um, this was going to be, be a wonderful day. And I have a client like come wheeling up with a band full of golden retrievers that just come back from a dog show. And they just start unloading them in my driveway and one had cut its foot, one of them this, one had done that. And, and I, I, instead of saying, gosh, I can't do this. There's a doctor on call. I left, I left my family. I got in my car. I drove to the press. I said, we got to go to practice. I can't do it here. And I spent all evening working on golden retrievers and missed out on my family. And the very next day, someone called me um, and said, Hey, we're starting this new veterinary company. And we like, like how, you know, the results you had, a, I, I was medical director of world practice at that time. And they're like, you like that? Would you be interested in joining us? And I was like, hell yeah. Yes. Right. Yes, I want to. And it, and it, but it was because I said yes, and I never said no. Mm. And it, it then, so then I moved out of practice, but I was still doing relief work. And what I did at that yeah. point, from that point on, is I said, I only take client messages or calls from from uh, 11 to noon, and then again at four to five. If it's an emergency, they need to call, talk to the receptionist, she can come back or they can talk to the doctor who's who's on call or, you know, I'll, I'll take it. But I am not answering anybody's questions because we can't put ourselves into a case trying to think through blood work and everything else and all the time have these interruptions. We just aren't good veterinarians that way. So I did that. I made people talk to the doctor on call. I was like, I'm not on call, you know, uh, Dr. Evans is a great, great doctor. You need to trust her. She's going to do a great job for you and, and pass that off. But I wish I had done that before I decided to leave. Right. If I had had, if I had learned this no thing before that, my life would have been the, the burnout and the frustration and the crying and all that would, I wouldn't, it wouldn't have solved every piece of it, but it would have started to make it bearable. Mm, I, I relate to that so deeply. Do you feel like when you started to say no, that you felt more empowered and you felt more yourself and like you had more, more boundaries. Yeah. I mean, at first it feels uncomfortable. It's like, this isn't, I'm not in the right clothes, you know, but to say no to these people, what if they don't like me then? Well, it, they did, they still liked me. They were just as okay, fine. I'll call 11. You know I mean? It wasn't like no one, the only person who was fearful of saying no was me. Mm -hmm. that, 
It's one part of those lies that we build up in our head. And then we, 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 we build them up so much that we think it's the truth. And then we finally start doing it. It's like, oh, that wasn't that bad. And then we do it again. I'm like, that was actually a little bit easier. You know, I remember Dr. Lang, he would come in in the morning and he was, he liked to start his day off without being bombarded. Right. And so what he asked us is if there was a fire burning, unless it was hurting somebody or the actual building was burning down, he wanted a solid the 45 minutes to an hour of getting his desk set up, set up, looking at his appointments, doing his stuff, and then bring the potential issues. And then let's talk about, you know, what, what problems we're dealing with. Like he needed that time to decompress, get himself prepared for the day, and then get ready to handle these problems. And I always looked at it as such a cool thing because I felt like that was him just kind of like setting his boundary of like, this is the time that I have to have. And unless someone is physically hurt, do not come in here and bring little things to me. And I and I, I thought that was really cool. So I like that you talk about this a little bit because I do believe it is one of the biggest things that dig into why we overexert ourselves. It's like if our cup is empty and we just continuously keep pouring from it, then then we don't have anything to give. And not even do we not have anything to give to our patients, our clients, but we're at the point where we don't have anything to give to our family and to ourselves. You know, I know this is such a cliche statement. I know this, but, you know, they talk about putting the airbags, the, you know, the oxygen mask on yourself first and then helping someone else out. I mean, there's a lot of validity to that because if you're not taking care of yourself, if you're not setting your boundaries, if you're not saying no to some of these things, then it's like, you're putting the air masks on other people first. And so I really, I'm really grateful that you, that you brought that up and that you, and that you actually had the statement that I learned from, because now it's kind of like, yeah, it's not what I'm saying yes to. It's what I say no to. And it's just another thing I've learned. So thank you for that. Okay. So now we're at the point where you get the phone call. They're good. They're setting up, they're setting up this, um, this new thing and you're moving into a different level. Is there a lot of excitement behind that? Are you excited to move on to that portion of, of your, yeah, of your, what it seemed like. I think I'm going to miss, I, and I st honestly still, it's been years and years and I still to this day miss certain things about practice, you know, even smells or sounds or mm -hmm. things. I love surgery. So I'm like, Oh, I'd love to sew something up, you know, um, fortunately I have 31 animals, so we get a good chance of it here at the house, but, um, it's, it was, I was excited, but I was a little sad. I felt like I'd let my, my clients down a little bit, you know, um, and that I'd let my, all that I learned down a little bit. There was a lot of guilt with it, honestly, for a good bit of time. And the only way that it got right with me, I think, Jennifer, was, was when I decided I had some, some things that I'd put into place that didn't exist before that helped more animals than I was able to help in my practice myself so okay. that led on this journey to what else can i do in the profession that helps the profession or helps animals in a greater way than i could do in a practice by myself and that, that's been my mantra quite honestly my guiding light throughout my career outside of practice which has been if it doesn't qualify for that that then i'm not going to do it because i'm I, I think it's that old guilt kind of like ah you know you got to still be helping animals. But if like today with Ignite, if I can train more people 
to be capable and competent in what they do in, in their patient care, then I'm done more than I could do. And it's thousands of people, then I'm doing way more than I could do in my practice by myself. So that thing is stuck with me and, and probably will always will be with me um, as a way to guide what I do in the space. Uh, the love we have for these animals, am I right? Okay, so that I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we got to this point now because you mentioned Ignite and I'm excited to talk a little bit about that. Did, what lit the fire for Ignite? Like, what was that moment where you were like, I'm ready to make this step and, and, and do this? Well, I've had um, some really incredible um, fortune being at BCA and starting their corporate university. And they were 25 years old and they didn't have a formal corporate learning university or environment for over 24,000 employees at the time. So we were able to start that from scratch. And um, I'd always been a lover of learning because I know in my own practice, spending time, and we had done this a lot when I was in practice, we had set times to train our staff so that they knew every Wednesday between 12 and one, they got some sort of learning, deep learning about something, either medical or soft skills or whatever it was. And it, it paid off big time because they just grew and grew and grew. And there was less and less and less that the, the practice manager and the veterinarians had to do because the, the team that you could delegate, you know, because they grew so so rapidly. So there was a really big passion of mine and I was able to do that VCA with all kinds of learners. And I learned things that were great and I learned things that I totally screwed up. And so when my husband joined another group of people in, in Austin, we moved from Southern California it kind of opened the door like, well, okay, what am I going to do now? Am I going to stay doing this remotely, which wasn't necessarily a cool thing at BC at the time, or do, what do I do? And a friend of mine, um, Jason Troutline, he said, so what's holding you back? Like, what is it you really, really want to do? We were over dinner and he, was, and I, he had me describe like, I was like, oh, Jason, if I could do this thing or we train people of all job roles, but the, but the learning was specific to them. So we didn't feel like we just cherished the veterinarian. We actually cherished the CSR and wanted it to be helpful for them. And that, and that. So I, I went through this dinner just fantasizing. He goes, well, why don't you do that? <laughs> I was like, and I was like, oh, why don't I do that? So it just, it was one of those things that took an outside person to kind of help me create the vision. And then, then that's all I could think about. Like mm -hmm. once we had dinner, I was obsessed with them. Like, oh my gosh, I got to do this because independent practices don't get a $2 million, $3 million budget to do education for their teams. They're lucky to get whatever they can. And could I create something that would be available to these independents that would let them have that same high quality learning? And that's what, that's, that was the passion and that's what came of it. But it was a dinner meeting that started the whole thing. Even when you talk about it right, right now, you can feel your passion. And I think that's what sets you apart from so many other people because you are doing it based off of your passion. I believe that that's what connects us so much is because I know what I'm doing is based off my passion. And the, when the two of us get together and we have these conversations, I mean, I can just totally feel it between between the two of us. So, yeah. and, 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 and even when we talk specifically about Ignite, you and I have very, very mutual feelings when it comes to training within veterinary hospitals. It is hard. There, a lot of these staff members are overrun. They're busy. There's high turnover. There's not enough staff to keep in the practice. And training is continuously at top of mind, but also, and also yeah. there's no time for it, right? 
So if you were to give one like shout out of Ignite and how it helps in that area, which in my opinion is one of our number one issues in vet medicine, what would kind of that shout out be like? What would the tagline be for these private practices and why Ignite can be so valuable? Well, training is always the first thing that you put aside when you're busy. Like, oh, we were supposed to meet on Wednesday and have training for the front desk, but gosh, we got these cases come in and we'll do it next week. We'll do it next week. We'll do it next week. And the problem with that is then the practice manager and the veterinarians and everybody else has, there's no way to delegate. We put people in a, a situation that they can't, they can't cope with because they don't have the tools to cope with it. So that angry client comes in and wants to beat up on the first person they see who's a poor CSR who really wants to do a great job. The practice manager has, so if we don't get off this hamster wheel, you have to make time for it for quality training in order to get any results or else you're going to be forever stuck with the practice manager being the only one that can solve a client complaint, with the practice manager being the only one that can start a client experience program or drive growth at the front desk or any of these things I'm talking about front desk, but in any role. Right. Um, and it's just, we've got to do it. And, and we, 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 I think we've been let down with education in, in veterinary medicine for a long time because we are hell bent on getting lectured to and just hope the goodness that we remember enough stuff to implement it. And there's neuroscience that tells us you got a big job to try to go up against the forgetting curve because by the time we get back from the conference, you're going to, 70% of what you learned is going to be gone, no matter how excited you were, unless it was reinforced. So that's what happens to us. So we get disappointed and we say, well, you know, learning is just, I, I paid for that once before and it never did anything or my CSR left or my tech left and I shouldn't have invested in her. But the reality is if we invest in them, they'll stay and they'll be great partners with you on all the things that you want to get done. But if you don't allow time for it, you never get that partner, you know? And we have, I can tell you from from, from my our, our data from BRC, which is a CSR program, it, it is impressive how many CSRs are dedicated. They'll do anything for the practice, the client, the pet. They just want to know how to do it. And they're, they're going home in tears, just like you're going home in tears, doctor, because of what you got going on. They're going home in tears because they feel like they failed their clients and their the, the pets today because they didn't know the right answer or they couldn't find the right answer or they weren't valuable to that patient care team. So my night thing is make time for it, make sure it's the right training, make sure it can be reinforced and you've got to be a part of it. If you're the hospital leadership, you know, Ignite can do the whole program and have the instructors and whatnot, but we're going to still ask you, you've got to be a part of it. And we've got practice managers who say, I'm no longer going up and seeing if Sally and Tim and everybody have done their, their work. They're coming to my office door and they're saying, hey, we learned this thing. Can we do it? Can we try this new wait time thing that we learned about for to decrease wait times at front? Can we do it? Can we do it? And the practice managers go, well, yeah, I don't, it's scaring me that you guys are coming to talk to me about ideas of how to improve the practice, but yes. And that's what I want to see happen in practices across the world, really, is let's empower these people so that we we are not burnt out. If we're burnt out, we're burnt out for a different reason other than you're having to do everybody's job in the practice because you aren't investing in training. Well, and if you think about it, it's like this vicious circle of we don't have time. 
And so we go around doing everybody else's job and feeling like we're doing everybody else's job because we're not taking a breath to do the training. That upsets us. We come off in a negative manner to all of our teammates. And then we wonder why they feel this way or why they want to leave, which is they haven't been trained properly. And you're walking around in a grumpy mood all the time because you're doing other people's jobs when the only fix to that is to pause and to really focus on getting some training for, for these staff members. And I agree with you, giving them tools that are going to serve them well beyond what they're doing just at your front desk. And I mean, I think that's just a huge deal when you invest in them, like Howard Barra says, and I say this all the time, when you take care of the people, they take care of the company. And, and I believe that deeply. And I think that's part of what you offer. And I love that. And I love that you're passionate about it. Okay. So we're going to wrap this up really quick. And, and I think this conversation has just been amazing and I'm super, super grateful for it. If you were, Jill, if you were to take two pieces of advice for a, for a veterinarian in practice right now, that was maybe struggling or ready to move on or jump to their next career, what would two pieces of advice be for, for those, for those practicing doctors? Uh, it's not just a pipe dream to, to do what you love as a, as a job, right? You can do what you love as a job and it may be veterinary medicine. And I think having people be introspective and trying to say, what is it I really love? And it may be, gosh, I really love medicine, but I don't like the management and I've worked myself into a position where I'm doing that. So I need to take an assessment of that. Just really spend a moment because we're so busy putting out fires. I think we don't, we don't take that time, but what is it you really love? And the beautiful thing about veterinary medicine is the job that you create might be the first time it's ever been. Um, this happens a lot with me, but there is nobody else doing that job in the entire world. Like you're creating a job that serves the veterinary profession. That is not necessarily something that everybody does or that you see on Indeed. So I think be open-minded because other people aren't doing it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Um, and then find out what, what you try to make that work. And the most important thing, I think, and this is what I told you too, when you were getting started is be excellent at one thing. Like I wish that I had, but it, when I started that, I wanted to do five job roles and make everything perfect. And I'm just now five years later, actually getting to do all that. But the, be good at one thing because there's a lot you can do, but if you can be good at or excellent at one thing, that opens the doors for lots of other things. And you feel like you're not juggling as much. That was a huge piece so of don't advice. Don't try to do it all because that's our nature. Well, and you, you, it's funny because you told me that whenever I, I called you and I said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to do this. I, I would love your opinion and just your thought process on it. And your piece of advice to me was Jennifer, just don't try and be a jack of all trades. Focus on one thing and master that and move on from there. And that mattered to me because I'm a dreamer. And when I'm a dreamer, like all of the sudden I have this big vision and I like, that's what I'm going for. And you helped me really narrow it down to where I feel like I'm in a space where I'm much more focused and I am just forever grateful for that. So, all right. Yeah. Well, I, I did follow my own advice. So I um, I with Ignite, we were growing and growing. We were this little baby company, our medium company. So I hired a CEO to replace me as a CEO so I could be a chief visionary officer. And so now I'm back creating cool products. That's my whole focus right now is product development with a team that does that. 
and I'm and I've got an incredible CEO that's running it. So even even when you're in something and you keep going, it can still evolve, right? You can be in the thing that you love that you're doing, but you go, I would love it even more if somebody capable was doing this and I could do this. And I think that's that's what's the cool part is just don't box yourself in because you just don't know what's going to happen if you really follow your Jill, even this interview it evolved from DBM to CEO to now CVO. So I I I just totally dig that. And that kind of gives space for us to come back and have more conversation about maybe that portion of your journey and making that decision because that's huge. And I also think we get to maybe come back. We didn't touch base on it today because you and I are going to really dig into it a little bit more around being a female CEO in in this world and the things that you learned from some of your other situations. So it looks like we're going to have opportunity to continue talking. I'm extremely grateful for you to Jill. And I, and I will not get off of this, this meeting today without thanking you for your dedication to something that is so needed in vet medicine, your passion, your love for uh, veterinarians, your love for technicians, your love for this profession. It speaks loudly and it, it just beams off of you. And I am so grateful that we are friends and I'm grateful that you took the time to chat with with me today. I'm grateful you reached out and said, Hey, I want to be a friend. (laughs) I love that about you. Oh, Uh, thank you so much. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining in. We'll see you on the next episode.